0: This podcast is brought to you by the GOSH Learning Academy. Hello and welcome back for a second series of GOSH Pods Goes Green. In this series, we are focusing on the important issue of air pollution. Over the next eight weeks, we will explore the impact of air quality on our health, factors contributing to air pollution and start to think about what we can do as individuals and as healthcare professionals to improve our air quality and advocate for change. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr Abigail Whitehouse, a paediatric respiratory consultant at the Royal London Hospital, as well as a senior clinical lecturer in children's environmental health at Queen Mary University. She's going to be talking to me today in a little bit more detail, about the effects of air pollutants on asthma and other respiratory diseases. Thank you so much, Dr. Whitehouse, for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much for the invite. Can you start just by telling me a little bit about what brought you to be passionate about air quality? So I
1: have done all of my paediatric training within London and Greater London, and I originally came to London from Manchester where I went to university and when I came down to London there was a definite change in the air quality that I'd noticed but hadn't really thought about and then while I was coming to the end of my ST3 so my kind of SHO year an opportunity came up within the respiratory department to do a PhD on an MRC funded grant and it turned into a lot bigger project and then an interest that kind of went on for a lot longer so it was a PhD looking at healthy children and their exposure to air pollution in London. This was around 2013-14 so it was kind of at a time when it was coming into the news and in the media and we kind of talked about it a bit and there was lots of research but nobody really talked about it in a clinical sense. It was all research and academic and I realised that this was a point that we didn't really talk about within asthma, we didn't talk about it within respiratory medicine in quite the same way as we certainly do now and it started my interest at that point and that PhD set into an ACL and then that sped into my current role now which is working half and half clinically and then research mainly looking at the impact of air pollution on asthma but also on lots of other respiratory conditions. And I think it's also led me to spend a lot of time within different groups that I wouldn't necessarily do. So working with primary care, community groups, charities, working with kids in particular learning about how they view the world and realising that we can make more of an impact than just coming to clinic and seeing us there, that I can go out and I can talk about air quality and I can change other people's perceptions. I'm still in a little bit of trouble with my mum because she bought a diesel car around the time that I did my PhD. And I did explain to her that I didn't really understand at that point what the impacts were, but now they've got an electric car so they're much happier now. So it's about realising how we impact on the environment around us and then how the environment basically shapes my whole clinical practice as well.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And especially speaking to somebody who combines that kind of research aspect with the clinical aspect as well, because I think that you're right, that it's, it's easy to look at things in the level in the lab, but then actually it's not always easy to transfer that to what that actually means for us as clinicians. So I think that's really interesting. And I understand that at the Royal London, you've set up an air pollution clinic. Could you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so this came out of that wanting to bring together what we do academically with what we do on a clinical basis. Everybody has spent a lot of time over the last 10 years looking at these impacts of air pollution on health, but it's actually bringing it into our routine clinical practice. So we got a grant funded by Barts Charity who are the charitable funders that sit alongside Bart's Health to open up an air pollution clinic or the Children's Environmental Health Clinic, which is designed to bring in all those things that we do on a regular basis for our academics work into what we do on a clinical day-to-day basis. So thinking about indoor and outdoor exposures for children with asthma and other respiratory conditions, and also thinking about what we might be missing in terms of their treatment. So there's always that one patient that you have that you just you can't work out why their asthma is being triggered or why they seem to be worse than other children. And then you find out if you do some monitoring that they live right next to the a 13 in London, which is one of the busiest roads. And actually, is that the key thing? Is that the thing that's making their asthma worse than we thought it was? Possibly. So this clinic is there and designed to try and find those patients that we're not quite sure about what's triggering them. And can we work out for them to do that at the same time as taking that education out to other places as well and thinking about all different people that we work with. And that's a really key point to this is to think about those other communities that we can impact by using this clinic.
0: That's really interesting. And sounds like a really useful service that you're providing. If you do identify a child where you think that the fact that they live close to, a, you know, a major A road is contributing to their symptoms. Is there anything you can actually do about that other than advising the parent to move house?
1: Yeah, I think what you've hit up on there is one of the biggest things that we come up against when we're talking about how to improve our children's exposure to air pollution. And it's a key part of the health inequality story. And we know that those people who are unable to move house are probably the ones that need to move house the most and they're most at risk. And say so, no, you can't just move outside. That doesn't work. As much as we'd like to have a funded randomized control trial that moves people with asthma outside of London to see if it helps their health, we know anecdotally that if he moves to the countryside, that your asthma does seem to get better and that makes sense. But it's about by acknowledging it and by finding it, then we can potentially do something about it. And the thing with the clinic is it's not just about outdoor air pollution, it's about indoor as well. So actually, if we pick up something that they can do inside such as changing cooking practices, then that we can make an impact on. I'm afraid, yeah, living close to a busy main road, we have to depend on those that work in other departments within the government and within the GLA to make changes to our quality. But we will have the data, we'll have the data to prove that we've got these children that have this impact and that in itself is useful as well, although not completely for the person that we might need to help. But we know that we'll be able to treat them clinically. We know that actually then maybe we do need to up their treatment to something more major because we found the trigger that we knew. And then we can treat that and hopefully we can control the asthma until somebody high up makes a change within air quality rules.
0: Yeah, completely. And I mean, you're absolutely right that I guess having that data means that that high up person in government is much more likely to listen to you and, and to, to do the things that need doing at a, a more national level. So in earlier episodes in the series, we learned about the many effects that air pollution can have on the whole body. And it really does seem to affect it in a huge variety of ways and impact on all the different body systems, cardiovascular, neurological, immunological. But I guess it's not surprising that the system it seems to affect most directly is the respiratory system. And I think You know, that's not going to be surprising to anybody because it's the part that comes into direct contact with the air pollution, I guess. I was hoping you could talk to me a bit about the effects that pollutants in the air have on the lungs. So you're right. It it pretty much affects everything, but the main
1: way it gets in is through your respiratory system. And the impacts that happen really early on. They happen before we're even born. So we know that lung development happens while we're in the womb. We know that babies are born smaller if they're exposed to air pollution during pregnancy. And we know that there are impacts in terms of placental delivery to a blood supply that can also affect growth. So that's kind of a key thing to start with and just that the babies are not growing as much as they should do before they're born. The key impact from a respiratory point of view falls into two main things. It's kind of the impacts on lung function and then it's the impacts on your immune system. So your lung function, it gradually goes up Over the years, until you reach older adolescents, early 20s, that's your peak lung function that you're ever going to reach. And then from then on, we expect a steady decline, unfortunately. But what happens is if you have any impact in that growing stage, particularly the adolescent stage where you have a massive leap in your lung function, then you don't ever reach that peak lung function. So that means that when you're older and you have other exposures or other impacts and you you might have other health issues then, that your your lungs are going to deteriorate potentially quicker. We know that it's not a fixed point and we know that we can change this if we improve air quality levels. There was a really big study in California because they managed to almost quarter their pollution levels in the children's health study. And they found that if the children that were growing up within the the levels that were much lower their lung function was much higher and they're much less likely to have clinically low lung function. That means if we can change air pollution levels we can change lung function which is great but whether or not we can recover lung function for those that have an impact early in life is more of a bigger question that's a bit harder to answer. In terms of the other kind of impact we're looking at impacts on the immune system in particular So you're more at risk for having more chest infections and pneumonia, particularly if you live in lower income countries. You're more at risk of having asthma or wheezing and more at risk of having asthma and wheezing exacerbations. And the reason for that is probably because you're getting a bit of a switch of the way your body reacts to external stimuli. So it's actually impacting on your immune system, making you more likely to be allergic is the kind of the feelings about why we think these happen. Those are the two key big things. And then that then has a knock-on effect of everything else that's going on in the body. So we have to think about how how much we're exposed to early on because it has long-term impacts.
0: That makes sense. How much do we know about the exact pathophysiological mechanisms by which these effects occur? Actually, we know a lot. A lot of it is due to kind of in vitro research
1: that we can do. So you can take cells in the lab, expose them to pollutants and see what happens to them. And then there's other pieces of work that then pull this together and then that kind of fills in the gap between in vitro work and big epidemiological studies that tell us the outcomes. My PhD looked at dendritic cells in particular, which are really key. If you think about the path that the pollutant takes or the particle takes, so you breathe it in, so it obviously affects your upper airway and it causes local irritation within the upper airway. If it's small enough, so kind of PM2.5 and smaller, it makes it all the way down into your lungs, into the bit, right at the bottom of the alveoli. And when it's there, it comes into contact with macrophages that gobble it up. And you also come into contact with dendritic cells. And dendritic cells are really special cells in that they take what they've been exposed to and they take it to the T cells and they cause a switch within T cells. They're your main white blood cells. And what we know from a lot of the research work is that there's a switch from having your kind of your normal, nice regulatory T-cells that maintain your immune system to the more Th2, thinking about an allergic type switch. And then that makes you more likely to have things like asthma and allergies, but it also makes the feeling that your body is more likely to react to what it's exposed to. So you need this early on in life. And then if you continue to be exposed to air pollution, it acts like an allergen or a trigger and it can exacerbate things later in life as well.
0: Okay, sure. That's really interesting. So the case that we've been discussing quite a lot across this podcast series has been the case of Ella Kissy Debra, who all, anyone who's been listening to the podcast will know the significance, and a young girl who tragically passed away of asthma that was exacerbated by the high levels of air pollution around where she lived. How does air pollution affect asthmatics? So you said that it generally affects your lung function, and it means that you're more likely to have exacerbations. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so exactly. So it, it has sort of two main things with
1: N-astham. asthma. is now good evidence that it probably does cause this immune switch. And so if you are predisposed genetically, although we don't know the genetics specifically, you're predisposed to asthma and then you're exposed to air pollution when you're younger, there's the potential that you will then go on to develop asthma wheezing when you're older. We also know that there is impaired lung development, like I said, so particularly within the womb, but also once in your early childhood. So that makes your lungs already more sensitive and slightly not working as well as they should do. And then your airway inflammation comes into play. So if you think about the particles coming in, you've already got these kind of slightly inflamed airways that may or may not be predisposed to asthma. And there's the potential that you you're more likely to have bronchial constriction and exposure to pollutants at that point. So they all kind of go into you having asthma and developing asthma. There's then also really good evidence that if you are exposed to pollutants, that your lung function has a drop right away. There's a study called the Oxford Street Study that was done several years ago now, where they got mild asthmatics and moderate asthmatics in adults. To walk along Oxford Street, where it's just full of buses and taxis, and see what it did to their lung function, and it dropped it. And then they got the same group of adults to walk through Hyde Park at a separate time to see what it did then. And you could quite clearly say that it, it had much less of an impact walking through Hyde Park. Although I'd counted that Hyde Park still has relatively high levels of air pollution, but doesn't have that kind of sooty, really localized exhaust fume type pollution, but it's definitely there. So it can then cause your broadcast restriction your asthma attacks are more likely to happen if you're exposed to particles, potentially. It all kind of fits into your, is it one of your triggers? And some people might not have air pollution as a trigger, but the majority, it will have some impact. There's also some emerging evidence that you're less likely to be sensitive to steroids. So the steroids might not work as well if you're known to have been exposed to air pollution younger in life. So it's thinking about all those different things that all come together that result in someone having far more exacerbations than they would do if they lived in a much lower polluted area. Which is pretty much what fits with, if you ever hear Rosamund talk, what seemed to happen with Ella in that they lived on a horribly polluted road in Lewisham, which is still incredibly polluted now. And she had multiple asthma attacks. And at the time, nobody really knew why she was having so many. And so that's, Why this, you know, this is one of the things that prompted us to want to do the air pollution clinic because we wanted to be able to find those children that we could make an impact for, even if we can't get them to move anywhere. We can at least tell them that they might need to think about things differently when they go outside.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting that they're less likely to respond to steroids. Why do you think that is? Like, could it be something to do with the effect that air pollution is having on the immune system or do you have any thoughts about why that might be? So I think it all comes
1: into that. So your, your steroids work because they dampen down your inflammation. The problem is, is that if your inflammation is too high, then that's potentially one reason. But also you're right. The likely thing is that the immune system just doesn't work as it should do. So your steroids just aren't as effective as they should be. So you might need more, you might need longer. Or you might need a different kind of process around it. So, they, you know, explaining why some people have really bad asthma attacks and it takes a couple of days for the steroids to kick in, as opposed to others who you give them a small dose of prednisolone and they seem to pack quite better. So, we said something within that, but that's, that's definitely something that people need to look more into in the
0: research at the moment. Yeah, definitely. And what about the effect? On other respiratory diseases, I mean, obviously asthma is the really common one in children, but thinking about adults as well, so potentially adults with with COPD, does air pollution have a similar effect on those individuals?
1: Yeah, so COPD in particular, you're getting the same kind of inflammation or airway hypersensitivity that you get within asthma, so it has similar impacts there, which is why people recommend that if you have COPD that you potentially don't spend as much time outside when you're on high pollution days. We also know that it increases your risk of cancer and lung cancer in particular, probably due to much more complex issues from when you're younger and actually possibly it's your exposures when you're a child that give you your risk when you're older. And the other thing that we've got to remember is that if you look at the lungs, you can see if you're exposed to air pollution. So there's research that was done from Sao Paulo, which is a really high polluted city in Brazil, that looks at lungs from patients that had died of lots of different reasons and looked to see how much carbon deposition there was in the lung tissue. And even if they were completely non-smokers, they still had horribly black-looking lungs if they'd spent their whole life living in Sao Paulo. So that horrible black lung that we used to see from smokers and from the smog, you know, 60 years ago, actually, we still get that. In horribly polluted areas, even if you're not smoking or inhaling anything else. So it has long term effects, and the, the health effects start from early childhood and go all the way through to adulthood.
0: Yeah, it's really quite frightening, isn't it? And I know that in the first podcast in this series, Dr. Mark Hayden talked about something similar the fact that, you know, transplant surgeons can sometimes tell when. Donated organs have come from people who lived in major cities just because of the difference in colour. And that is really quite scary. It's awful, isn't it? I mean, we look at sputum quite a lot. So we see, you
1: know, the black particles within macrophages, so those cells that sit within the lungs. And so you can see the particles there. And that makes sense because you're breathing it in. It's like when your nose secretions also look a bit black when you've been somewhere particularly traffic related. But you see that even in people that aren't just. Within, you know, living right next to a main road, you still see black bits within anybody that lives within London. We've done work out in Malawi where the cook stoves and the stoves that they're exposed to have obviously a lot more particles coming out of them. And you can see that and we can tell that within the lungs. But those particles get everywhere. And a few years ago, Dr. Lee from our group, but also a group from Belgium showed that those particles make it all the way to the placenta. So it's not just your lungs that are really impacted by those particles. They get everywhere.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you've explained quite well, I think, why it's not just people with respiratory disease that should be worried that actually, you know, pollution affects even those with otherwise, in inverted commas, healthy lungs, just because it stops them getting to their maximum lung function and can have all these other effects. And, you know, essentially they get black lungs. What kind of symptoms might those with healthy lungs otherwise notice as a result of this? How might they be affected? It's
1: not just people with asthma and COPD that notice when they go into a heavily polluted area. Your risk of developing pneumonia can be higher as well because your lung ability to deal with those bacteria that come in is not as good if you persistently live within a highly polluted area. So those with healthy lungs or don't have asthma and weren't predisposed to it But you go to somewhere that's heavily polluted, you walk down a busy road with traffic, you're still more likely to cough. You're still going to get the irritation. You're still going to get the nasal irritation. You might have hay fever and it might make that worse. It might make you sneeze more. It will probably still drop your lung function. And we know that. So you're still potentially going to feel some of those effects. Although you won't necessarily know what they are. And it might be that you get on your train and you go back to somewhere nice and in the countryside and you go, actually, things do feel a little bit different here. It doesn't mean you've got a medical problem or anything that needs treatment. It just means that you've been exposed to a large amount of particles all in one go. So we should all be thinking about pollution. We should all be thinking about how to reduce it. And we should all be thinking about improving the air quality around us because it's not just us. And just because I don't have acid doesn't mean that I don't want to make sure that the air is as clean as possible for everybody else around me. Yeah,
0: completely. I think that's a really important point. And then I guess on a similar note, another thing that we've kind of talked about on the podcast a lot has been the fact that as healthcare professionals, we probably do have a responsibility to start raising awareness about climate change and air pollution as a a health issue rather than a social, economic, political issue, which I think is what it's kind of typically seen as. How do you think clinicians should be talking about this, either with their patients or more widely? What advice would you have for clinicians? So we've done some pieces of work here in northeast London, and also I talk to people
1: quite often about it, about making pollution an integral part of asthma and respiratory care clinic appointments. So we should be talking about it with everybody because we know that it potentially exacerbates lots of things, and potentially it could be the reason why someone is ill and is coming to our clinic. So actually it should be part of our, do you smoke? Where do you live? Do you live by a main road? what kind of exposures might you have and that should be in there. The reason why it can be something that we don't really want to talk about when you're talking to people for the first time is because someone will then want to know what to do about it and that's the bit that unfortunately is still a little bit lacking. Hopefully the air pollution clinic will help us with that will be okay what kind of advice can we give what evidence is there out there for changing your cooking practices or walking down a side street rather than a main road which we know reduces your exposure. Which things should we be suggesting people do? We've done some work looking at giving five simple pieces of advice just to kind of give the patient something that they can act on themselves. And then that gives you a, a conversation you can have. I'm saying this, we need to cram it into a respiratory appointment, which is a little bit longer. We're also talking about having to do this in general practice and in primary care when your appointment's are 10 minutes and you're still trying to fit in everything else. It's difficult to put it in there, but if we've got time and we've got even just 30 seconds to talk about pollution, we should do as part of a routine practice. And I think if we started to implement that everywhere, that would be really helpful. We're starting to see that now. There's a real push from the RCP, the RCPCH, about talking about air pollution. It's a much bigger issue, as is climate change, and everybody is talking about it a lot more now. I was at the RCPCH conference last week, really strong focus on climate change, health inequalities, and air pollution and what we should do about it. And that's the bit that we need to focus on now. The other bit that you asked about was about what we should do in kind of the wider picture. And that's a bit, that's more difficult. We are more than happy and very reassured to tell someone that they shouldn't smoke because we know the health impacts of smoking. So do not smoke. Do not smoke around your children. Do not smoke in your home. Particles are still there. Don't do it. We know that it helps It's a little bit different when you say, do not buy a diesel car. Or you need to think about what you're doing when you're using your wood burning stove, Or you shouldn't be driving your car to do half a mile. That's a really different conversation to have. And it's really difficult to think about. So actually, that's one that we should be having on a much wider scale. And that is making it into the media, it's making it into policy at the moment. But they are still conversations that we need to think about. and. You know, if we live in central London, then thinking about diesel cars in particular, we probably should be suggesting that people don't drive their diesel cars.
0: Yeah, definitely. But I, I agree. It's it's much harder to have those conversations, I think, when, you know, it's very similar to smoking. But smoking is something that people have a lot more personal control over than air pollution. <laughs> so I guess it's, you know, it's debatable how much control people have over air pollution. And like you say, probably something that needs to be tackled at a larger level than, you know, a doctor-patient relationship. And also it's about thinking about the health inequality side
1: of this really comes into play at this point. So unfortunately we know that diesel cars are bad, but people buy cars because they need them to get from A to B to do their jobs on a daily basis and they may not have the money to buy a brand new car that's an electric car. They may not have the funds to do that. They may have Far more pressing things to spend their money on, especially at the moment with the cost of living crisis. So actually, we know that a lot of the advice that we give around, you know, improving car choices or where you live, all depends on how where you are in society and whether or not you've got the funds to change things. And if you don't have the funds, then what do you do? How do we approach that? And that's where we as clinicians come into play in terms of policy. And supporting things like supporting families to find access to good quality housing, how can we support that process on a wider scale? And that's a whole nother conversation talking about indoor pollutants and mold, but it's the thing that we will get asked about a lot in clinic. And so what can we do about their housing situation when the most we feel we can do is write a letter, which often doesn't get very far. And so those conversations are really key at the moment in particular.
0: Yeah, and I'm so glad you mentioned the health inequality side of things because that's actually going to be the focus of our conversation on next week's podcast. Are there any resources that you'd recommend for listeners who might want to find out more about the impact of air pollution on their lungs? Yeah, so you can go to the Clean Air
1: Hub if you go Google Clean Air Hub and that's some work that we've done talking about those kind of five key things that you can do. It's run by Global Action Plan There's the European Lung Foundation, and they have lots of patient and clinician resources available. The RCBCH website has lots as well, and it is currently putting together a health inequalities toolkit as well, which will include some of the more indoor air pollution related resources. But
0: yeah, the Clean Air Hub and the European Lung Foundation have got great resources. Fantastic. That's really helpful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to me today. It's been really, really fascinating. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gosh Pods Goes Green. We hope you can join us again next week, where we're going to be talking to Anjali Rahman Middleton, one of the founders of Choked Up, a campaign group focusing on inequality issues within the topic of air pollution. The team at the Gosh Learning Academy would love to get your feedback on the episode, as well as hear your suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear on Gosh Pods. You can find a link to the feedback survey in the description for the episode. If you want to hear more about the work of the GOSH Learning Academy, you can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Or you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. Thanks for listening to GOSH Pods and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.